You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to Oleander Book Club. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. All right, everyone, just to timestamp this, everyone's just sitting around waiting to find out who's president. Hey, me too. Okay, so here's something to pass the time with. How about some Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Begler, my French accent is terrible. Uh, rate, review, subscribe. Don't rate my accents. Just subscribe and rate this uh, podcast. And thank you so much, Oleander Book Club, Oleander, Oregon, 11.30 a.m. KZOM, the p- place to be and be seen on a radio. You know how it goes. All right. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Stay clean. Be cool. Don't be a jerk. Listen to Radio Free Oleander. Thank you. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 2. Arsène Lupin in Prison. Part 2. The Baron afterwards regretted making the charge against Lupin when he saw his castle delivered over to the gendarmes, the procureur, the juge d'instruction, the newspaper reporters and photographers, and a throng of idle curiosity-seekers. The affair soon became a topic of general discussion, and the name of Arsène Lupin excited the public imagination to such an extent that the newspapers filled their columns with the most fantastic stories of his exploits, which found ready credence amongst their readers. But the letter of Arsène Lupin that was published in the Echo de France, no one ever knew how the newspaper obtained it, that letter in which Baron Caron was impudently warned of the coming theft, caused considerable excitement. The most fabulous theories were advanced. Some recalled the existence of the famous subterranean tunnels, and that was the line of research pursued by the officers of the law who searched the house from top to bottom, questioned every stone, studied the wainscoting and the chimneys, the window frames and the girders in the ceilings. By the light of torches, they examined the immense cellars where the lords of Malachy were wont to store their munitions and provisions. They sounded the rocky foundation to its very centre. But it was all in vain. They discovered no trace of a subterranean tunnel no secret passage existed. But the eager public declared that the pictures and furniture could not vanish like so many ghosts. They are substantial material things, and require doors and windows for their exits and their entrances, and so do the people that removed them. Who were those people? How did they gain access to the castle? And how did they leave it? The police officers of Rouen, convinced of their own impotence, solicited the assistance of the Parisian detective force. M. Doudoui, chief of the Sûreté, sent the best sleuths of the Iron Brigade. He himself spent forty-eight hours at the castle, but met with no success. Then he sent for Ganimard, whose past services had proved so useful when all else failed. Ganimard listened in silence to the instructions of his superior. Then, shaking his head, he said, "'In my opinion, it is useless to ransack the castle. The solution of the problem lies elsewhere.' "'Where, then?' "'With Arsène Lupin.' "'With Arsène Lupin. To support that theory, we must admit his intervention.' "'I do admit it. In fact, I consider it quite certain.' "'Come, Ganimard, that is absurd. 
Arsène Lupin is in prison. I grant you that Arsène Lupin is in prison, closely guarded. But he must have fetters on his feet, manacles on his wrists, and gag in his mouth before I change my opinion. Why so obstinate, Ganimard? Because Arsène Lupin is the only man in France of sufficient calibre to invent and carry out a scheme of that magnitude. Mere words, Ganimard. But true ones. Look, what are they doing? Searching for subterranean passages, stones swinging on pivots, and other nonsense of that kind. But Lupin doesn't employ such old-fashioned methods. He is a modern cracksman, right up to date. And how would you proceed? I should ask your permission to spend an hour with him. In his cell? Yes, during the return trip from America... We became very friendly, and I venture to say that if he can give me any information without compromising himself, he will not hesitate to save me from incurring useless trouble. It was shortly after noon when Ganimard entered the cell of Arsène Lupin. The latter, who was lying on his bed, raised his head and uttered a cry of apparent joy. "'Ah, oh, this is a real surprise! My dear Ganimard, here!' Ganimard himself. In my chosen retreat, I have felt a desire for many things, but my fondest wish was to receive you here. Very kind of you, I am sure. Not at all. You know I hold you in the highest regard. I am proud of it. I have always said Ganimard is our best detective. He is almost, you see how candid I am, he is almost as clever as Sherlock Holmes. But I am sorry that I cannot offer you anything better than this hard stool, and no refreshments, not even a glass of beer. Of course, you will excuse me, as I am here only temporarily. Ganimard smiled and accepted the proffered seat. Then the prisoner continued, Monsieur, how pleased I am to see the face of an honest man. I am so tired of those devils of spies who come here ten times a day to ransack my pockets and my cell, to satisfy themselves that I am not preparing to escape. The government is very solicitous on my account. It is quite right. Why so? I should be quite contented if they would allow me to live in my own quiet way. On other people's money. Quite so. That would be so simple. But here I am joking, and you are no doubt in a hurry. So let us come to business, Ganimard. To what do I owe the honour of this visit? The Caon affair, declared Ganimard, frankly. Ah, oh, wait a moment. You see, I have had so many affairs. First let me fix in my mind the circumstances of this particular case. Ah, oh, yes, now I have it. The Caon affair, Malachy Castle, Seine Inferieure. Two Rubens, a Watteau, and a few trifling articles. Trifling? Ah, oh, ma foi, all that is of slight importance. But it suffices to know that the affair interests you. How can I serve you, Ganimard? Must I explain to you what steps the authorities have taken in the matter? Not at all. I have read the newspapers, and I will frankly state that you have made very little progress. And that is the reason I have come to see you. I am entirely at your service. In the first place, the Caon affair was managed by you. From A to Z. The letter of warning, the telegram. All mine. 
I ought to have the receipts here somewhere. Arsène opened the drawer of a small table of plain white wood which, with the bed and stool, constituted all the furniture in his cell, and took therefrom two scraps of paper which he handed to Ganimard. Ha! Huh, exclaimed the detective in surprise. I thought you were closely guarded and searched, and I find that you read the newspapers and collect postal receipts. Oh, these people are so stupid. They open the lining of my vest, they examine the soles of my shoes, they sound the walls of my cell, but they never imagine that Arsène Lupin would be foolish enough to choose such a simple hiding-place. Ganimard laughed as he said, <laughs> What a droll fellow you are! Really, you bewilder me! But come now, tell me about the Caron affair. Oh, ho, not quite so fast! You would rob me of all my secrets, expose all my little tricks. That is a very serious matter. Was I wrong to count on your complacence? No, Ganimard, and since you insist. Arsène Lupin paced his cell two or three times. Then, stopping before Ganimard, he asked, What do you think of my letter to the baron? I think you were amusing yourself by playing to the gallery. Ha! Oh, playing to the gallery. Come, Ganimard, I thought you knew me better. Do I, Arsène Lupin, ever waste my time on such puerilities? Would I have written that letter if I could have robbed the baron without writing to him? I want you to understand that the letter was indispensable. It was the motor that set the whole machine in motion. Now let us discuss together a scheme for the robbery of the Malachy Castle. Are you willing? Yes, proceed. Well, let us suppose a castle carefully closed and barricaded, like that of the Baron Caron. Am I to abandon my scheme and renounce the treasures that I covet, upon the pretext that the castle which holds them is inaccessible? Evidently not. Should I make an assault upon the castle, at the head of a band of adventurers, as they did in ancient times? That would be foolish. Can I gain admittance by stealth or cunning? impossible then there is only one way open to me i must have the owner of the castle invite me to it that is surely an original method and how easy let us suppose that one day the owner receives a letter warning him that a notorious burglar known as arsene lupin is plotting to rob him what will he do send a letter to the procureur who will laugh at him because the said Arsène Lupin is actually in prison. Then, in his anxiety and fear, the simple man will ask the assistance of the first comer, will he not? Very likely. And if he happens to read in a country newspaper that a celebrated detective is spending his vacation in a neighboring town, he will seek that detective. Of course. But on the other hand, let us presume that, having foreseen that state of affairs, the said Arsène Lupin has requested one of his friends to visit Caudebec, make the acquaintance of the editor of the Réveil, a newspaper to which the Baron is a subscriber, and let said editor understand that such person is the celebrated detective. Then what will happen? The editor will announce in the Réveil the presence in Caudebec of said detective. Exactly and one of two things will happen. Either the fish, I mean Caon, will not bite, 
and nothing will happen, or, what is more likely, he will run and greedily swallow the bait. Thus behold my Baron Caon imploring the assistance of one of my friends against me. Original indeed. Of course the pseudo-detective at first refuses to give any assistance. On top of that comes the telegram from Arsène Lupin. The frightened baron rushes once more to my friend, and offers him a definite sum of money for his services. My friend accepts, and summons two members of our band, who, during the night, whilst Caon is under the watchful eye of his protector, removes certain articles by way of the window, and lowers them with ropes into a nice little launch, chartered for the occasion. Simple, isn't it? Marvellous! Marvellous! exclaimed Ganimard. The boldness of the scheme and the ingenuity of all its details are beyond criticism. But who is the detective whose name and fame served as a magnet to attract the baron and draw him into your net? There is only one name could do it. Only one. And that is... Arsène Lupin's personal enemy, the most illustrious Ganimard. I? Yourself, Ganimard. And really, it is very funny. If you go there and the baron decides to talk, you will find that it will be your duty to arrest yourself, just as you arrested me in America. <laughs> the revenge is really amusing. I cause Ganimard to arrest Ganimard. Arsène Lupin laughed heartily. The detective, greatly vexed, bit his lips. To him, the joke was quite devoid of humor. The arrival of a prison guard gave Ganimard an opportunity to recover himself. The man brought Arsène Lupin's luncheon, furnished by a neighboring restaurant. After depositing the tray upon the table, the guard retired. Lupin broke his bread, ate a few morsels, and continued. But rest easy, my dear Ganimard. You will not go to Malachy. I can tell you something that will astonish you. The Caon affair is on the point of being settled. Excuse me, I have just seen the chief of the Sûreté. What of that? Does Monsieur Dudouis know my business better than I do myself? You will learn that Ganimard, excuse me, that pseudo-Ganimard, still remains on very good terms with the baron. The latter has authorized him to negotiate a very delicate transaction with me, and at the present moment, in consideration of a certain sum, it is probable that the baron has recovered possession of his pictures and other treasures, and on their return he will withdraw his complaint. Thus there is no longer any theft, and the law must abandon the case. Ganimard regarded the prisoner with a bewildered air. And how do you know all that? I've just received the telegram I was expecting. You have just received a telegram? This very moment, my dear friend. Out of politeness, I did not wish to read it in your presence, but if you will permit me. You are joking, Lupin. My dear friend, if you will be so kind as to break that egg, you will learn for yourself that I am not joking. Mechanically, Ganimard obeyed and cracked the eggshell with the blade of a knife. He uttered a cry of surprise. The shell contained nothing but a small piece of blue paper. At the request of Arsène, he unfolded it. It was a telegram, or rather a portion of a telegram, from which the postmarks had been removed. It read as follows. 
Contract closed. Hundred thousand balls delivered. All well. One hundred thousand balls, said Ganimard. Yes, one hundred thousand francs. Very little, but then you know these are hard times, and I have some heavy bills to meet. If you only knew my budget, living in the city comes very high. Ganimard arose. His ill-humour had disappeared. He reflected for a moment, glancing over the whole affair in an effort to discover a weak point. Then, in a tone and manner that betrayed his admiration of the prisoner, he said, "'Fortunately, we do not have a dozen such as you to deal with. If we did, we would have to close up shop.' Arsène Lupin assumed a modest air as he replied, oh, "'A person must have some diversion to occupy his leisure hours, especially when he is in prison.' "'What?' exclaimed Ganimard. "'Your trial, your defence, the examination.' Isn't that sufficient to occupy your mind? No, because I have decided not to be present at my trial. Oh, oh! Arsène Lupin repeated positively, I shall not be present at my trial. Really? Oh, my dear monsieur, do you suppose I am going to rot upon the wet straw? You insult me. Arsène Lupin remains in prison just as long as it pleases him, and not one minute more. Perhaps it would have been more prudent if you had avoided getting there, said the detective ironically. Ah, oh, monsieur jests. Monsieur must remember that he had the honour to effect my arrest. Know then, my worthy friend, that no one, not even you, could have placed a hand upon me if a much more important event had not occupied my attention at that critical moment. You astonish me. A woman was looking at me, Ganimard, and I loved her. Do you fully understand what that means, to be under the eyes of a woman that one loves? I cared for nothing in the world but that. And that is why I am here. Permit me to say you have been here a long time. In the first place, I wished to forget. Do not laugh. It was a delightful adventure, and it is still a tender memory. Besides, I have been suffering from neurasthenia. Life is so feverish these days that it is necessary to take the rest cure occasionally, and I find this spot a sovereign remedy for my tired nerves. Arsène Lupin, you are not a bad fellow after all. Thank you, said Lupin. Ganimard, this is Friday. On Wednesday next, at four o'clock in the afternoon, I will smoke my cigar at your house in the Rue Pergolaise. Arsène Lupin? I will expect you. They shook hands like two old friends who valued each other at their true worth. Then the detective stepped to the door. Ganimard? What is it? asked Ganimard as he turned back. You have forgotten your watch. My watch? Yes, it strayed into my pocket. He returned the watch, excusing himself. Pardon me, a bad habit. Because they have taken mine is no reason why I should take yours. Besides, I have a chronometer here that satisfies me fairly well. He took from the drawer a large gold watch and heavy chain. From whose pocket did that come? asked Ganimard. Arsène Lupin gave a hasty glance at the initials engraved on the watch. J.B. Who the devil can that be? Oh, yes, I remember. Jules Bouvier, the judge who conducted my examination. A charming fellow. 
End of chapter 2 The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc Chapter 3 The Escape of Arsène Lupin, Part 1 Arsène Lupin had just finished his repast, and taken from his pocket an excellent cigar with a gold band, which he was examining with unusual care when the door of his cell was opened. He had barely time to throw the cigar into the drawer and move away from the table. The guard entered. It was the hour for exercise. "'I was waiting for you, my dear boy,' exclaimed Lupin, in his accustomed good humour. They went out together. As soon as they had disappeared at a turn in the corridor, two men entered the cell and commenced a minute examination of it. One was Inspector Duty, the other was Inspector Follenfant. They wished to verify their suspicion that Arsène Lupin was in communication with his accomplices outside of the prison. On the preceding evening, the Grand Journal had published these lines, addressed to its court reporter. Monsieur, in a recent article you referred to me in most unjustifiable terms. Some days before the opening of my trial, I will call you to account. Arsène Lupin the handwriting was certainly that of Arsène Lupin. Consequently, he sent letters, and no doubt received letters. It was certain that he was preparing for that escape thus arrogantly announced by him. The situation had become intolerable. Acting in conjunction with the examining judge, the chief of the Sûreté, M. Doudouis, had visited the prison and instructed the jailer in regard to the precautions necessary to ensure Lupin's safety. At the same time, he sent the two men to examine the prisoner's cell. They raised every stone, ransacked the bed, did everything customary in such a case, but they discovered nothing, and were about to abandon their investigation when the guard entered hastily and said, "'The drawer! Look in the table drawer! When I entered just now, he was closing it!' They opened the drawer, and Dutsy exclaimed, "'Ah, oh, we have him this time!' Follenfant stopped him. Wait a moment. The chief will want to make an inventory. This is a very choice cigar. Leave it there and notify the chief. Two minutes later, M. Doudouis examined the contents of the drawer. First, he discovered a bundle of newspaper clippings relating to Arsène Lupin, taken from the Argus de la Presse, then a tobacco box, a pipe, some paper called onion peel, and two books. He read the titles of the books. One was an English edition of Carlyle's Hero Worship. The other was a charming Elsevier in modern binding, the Manual of Epictetus, a German translation published at Leyden in 1634. On examining the books, he found that all the pages were underlined and annotated. Were they prepared as a code for correspondence, or did they simply express the studious character of the reader? Then he examined the tobacco box and the pipe. Finally, he took up the famous cigar with its gold band. Fichtre, he exclaimed. Our friend smokes a good cigar. It's a Henry Clay. With the mechanical action of a habitual smoker, he placed the cigar close to his ear and squeezed it to make it crack. Immediately, he uttered a cry of surprise. The cigar had yielded under the pressure of his fingers. He examined it more closely and quickly discovered something white between the leaves of tobacco. 
Delicately, with the aid of a pin, he withdrew a roll of very thin paper, scarcely larger than a toothpick. It was a letter. He unrolled it and found these words, written in a feminine handwriting. The basket has taken the place of the others. Eight out of ten are ready. On pressing the outer foot, the plate goes downward. From twelve to sixteen every day, H.P. will wait. But where? Reply at once. Rest easy. Your friend is watching over you. M. Doudouis reflected a moment, then said, It is quite clear. The basket, the eight compartments, from twelve to sixteen, means from twelve to four o'clock. But this H.P. that will wait? H.P. must mean automobile. H.P., horsepower, is the way they indicate strength of the motor. A 24 H.P. is an automobile of 24 horsepower. Then he rose and asked, Had the prisoner finished his breakfast? Yes. And as he has not yet read the message, which is proved by the condition of the cigar, it is probable that he had just received it. How? In his food, concealed in his bread or in a potato, perhaps. Impossible. His food was allowed to be brought in simply to trap him, but we have never found anything in it. We will look for Lupin's reply this evening. Detain him outside for a few minutes. I shall take this to the examining judge, and if he agrees with me, we will have the letter photographed at once, and in an hour you can replace the letter in the drawer in a cigar similar to this. The prisoner must have no cause for suspicion." It was not without a certain curiosity that M. Doudouis returned to the prison in the evening, accompanied by Inspector Dutzi. Three empty plates were sitting on the stove in the corner. "'He has eaten?' "'Yes,' replied the guard. "'Dutzi, please cut that macaroni into very small pieces, and open that bread-roll.' "'Nothing?' "'No, chief.' M. Doudouis examined the plates, the fork, the spoon, and the knife, an ordinary knife with a rounded blade. He turned the handle to the left, then to the right. It yielded and unscrewed. The knife was hollow and served as a hiding-place for a sheet of paper. <laughs> he said. That is not very clever for a man like Arsène, but we mustn't lose any time. You, Dutzi, go and search the restaurant. Then he read the note. I trust to you, H.P. will follow at a distance every day. I will go ahead. Au revoir, dear friend. At last, cried M. Doudouis, rubbing his hands gleefully, I think we have the affair in our own hands. A little strategy on our part, and the escape will be a success, in so far as the arrest of his confederates are concerned. But if Arsène Lupin slips through your fingers, suggested the guard, we will have a sufficient number of men to prevent that. If, however, he displays too much cleverness, ma foi, so much the worse for him. As to his band of robbers, since the chief refuses to speak, the others must. And, as a matter of fact, Arsène Lupin had very little to say. For several months, M. Jules Bouvier, the examining judge, had exerted himself in vain. The investigation had been reduced to a few uninteresting arguments between the judge and the advocate, Maître Danval, one of the leaders of the bar. From time to time, through courtesy, Arsène Lupin would speak. One day he said, Yes, Monsieur le Juge, 
I quite agree with you. The robbery of the Crédit Lyonnais, the theft in the Rue de Babylone, the issue of the counterfeit banknotes, the burglaries at the various chateaux, Armesnil, Goret, Amblevin, Grosseyer, Malaki, all my work, monsieur, I did it all. Then will you explain to me? It is useless. I confess everything in a lump, everything and even ten times more than you know nothing about. Wearied by his fruitless task, the judge had suspended his examinations, but he resumed them after the two intercepted messages were brought to his attention, and regularly at midday, Arsène Lupin was taken from the prison to the depot in the prison van with a certain number of other prisoners. They returned about three or four o'clock. Now, one afternoon, this return trip was made under unusual conditions. The other prisoners not having been examined, it was decided to take back Arsène Lupin first. Thus he found himself alone in the vehicle. These prison vans, vulgarly called paniers à salade, or salad baskets, are divided lengthwise by a central corridor from which open ten compartments, five on either side. Each compartment is so arranged that the occupant must assume and retain a sitting posture, and consequently the five prisoners are seated one upon the other, and yet separated one from the other by partitions. A municipal guard, standing at one end, watches over the corridor. Arsène was placed in the third cell on the right, and the heavy vehicle started. He carefully calculated when they left the Quai de l'Horloge, and when they passed the Palais de Justice. Then, about the centre of the bridge Saint-Michel, with his outer foot, that is to say his right foot, he pressed upon the metal plate that closed his cell. Immediately something clicked, and the metal plate moved. He was able to ascertain that he was located between the two wheels. He waited, keeping a sharp lookout. The vehicle was proceeding slowly along the boulevard Saint-Michel. At the corner of Saint-Germain, it stopped. A truck horse had fallen. The traffic having been interrupted, a vast throng of fiacres and omnibuses had gathered there. Arsène Lupin looked out. Another prison van had stopped close to the one he occupied. He moved the plate still farther, put his foot on one of the spokes of the wheel, and leapt to the ground. A coachman saw him, roared with laughter, then tried to raise an outcry, but his voice was lost in the noise of the traffic that had commenced to move again. Moreover, Arsène Lupin was already far away. He had run for a few steps, but once upon the sidewalk he turned and looked around. He seemed to scent the wind like a person who was uncertain which direction to take. Then, having decided, he put his hands in his pockets, and with the careless air of an idle stroller he proceeded up the boulevard. It was a warm, bright autumn day, and the cafés were full. He took a seat on the terrace of one of them. He ordered a bock and a package of cigarettes. He emptied his glass slowly, smoked one cigarette, and lighted a second. Then he asked the waiter to send the proprietor to him. When the proprietor came, Arsène spoke to him in a voice loud enough to be heard by everyone. "'I regret to say, monsieur, I have forgotten my pocket-book.' Perhaps, on the strength of my name, you will be pleased to give me credit for a few days. I am Arsène Lupin. The proprietor looked at him, thinking he was joking. But Arsène repeated, Lupin, 
prisoner at the Santé, but now a fugitive. I venture to assume that the name inspires you with perfect confidence in me. And he walked away, amidst shouts of laughter, whilst the proprietor stood amazed. Lupin strolled along the Rue Soufflot and turned into the Rue Saint-Jacques. He pursued his way slowly, smoking his cigarettes and looking into the shop windows. At the boulevard de Port-Royal, he took his bearings, discovered where he was, and then walked in the direction of the Rue de la Santé. The high, forbidding walls of the prison were now before him. He pulled his hat forward to shade his face. Then, approaching the sentinel, he asked, "'Is this the prison de la Santé?' "'Yes.' I wish to regain my cell. The van left me on the way, and I would not abuse. Now, young man, move along, quick, growled the sentinel. Pardon me, but I must pass through that gate, and if you prevent Arsène Lupin from entering the prison, it will cost you dear, my friend. Arsène Lupin, what are you talking about? I am sorry I haven't a card with me, said Arsène, fumbling in his pockets. The sentinel eyed him from head to foot, in astonishment. Then, without a word, he rang a bell. The iron gate was partly opened, and Arsène stepped inside. Almost immediately he encountered the keeper of the prison, gesticulating and feigning a violent anger. Arsène smiled and said, "'Come, monsieur, don't play that game with me. What, they take the precaution to carry me alone in the van, prepare a nice little obstruction,' and imagine I am going to take to my heels and rejoin my friends. Well, and what about the twenty agents of the Sûreté who accompanied us on foot, in fiacre and on bicycles? No, the arrangement did not please me. I should not have got away alive. Tell me, monsieur, did they count on that? He shrugged his shoulders and added, I beg of you, monsieur, not to worry about me. When I wish to escape, I shall not require any assistance. On the second day thereafter, the Echo de France, which had apparently become the official reporter of the exploits of Arsène Lupin, it was said that he was one of its principal shareholders, published a most complete account of this attempted escape. The exact wording of the messages exchanged between the prisoner and his mysterious friend, the means by which correspondence was constructed, the complicity of the police, the promenade on the boulevard Saint-Michel, the incident at the Café Soufflot, everything was disclosed. It was known that the search of the restaurant and its waiters by Inspector Duty had been fruitless, and the public also learned an extraordinary thing which demonstrated the infinite variety of resources that Lupin possessed. The prison van, in which he was being carried, was prepared for the occasion and substituted by his accomplices for one of the six vans which did service at the prison. The next escape of Arsène Lupin was not doubted by anyone. He announced it himself in categorical terms in a reply to M. Bouvier on the day following his attempted escape. The judge having made a jest about the affair, Arsène was annoyed, and firmly eyeing the judge, he said emphatically, Listen to me, monsieur. I give you my word of honor that this attempted flight was simply preliminary to my general plan of escape. I do not understand, said the judge. It is not necessary that you should understand. And the judge, in the course of that examination which was reported at length in the columns of the Echo de France, when the judge sought to resume his investigation, 
Arsène Lupin exclaimed, with an assumed air of lassitude, Mon Dieu, mon Dieu, what's the use? All these questions are of no importance. What? No importance? cried the judge. No, because I shall not be present at the trial. You will not be present? No, I have fully decided on that, and nothing will change my mind. Such assurance, combined with the inexplicable indiscretions that Arsène Lupin committed every day, served to annoy and mystify the officers of the law. There were secrets known only to Arsène Lupin, secrets that he alone could divulge. But for what purpose did he reveal them? And how? Arsène Lupin was changed to another cell. The judge closed his preliminary investigation. No further proceedings were taken in his case for a period of two months, during which time Arsène was seen almost constantly lying on his bed with his face turned toward the wall. The changing of his cell seemed to discourage him. He refused to see his advocate. He exchanged only a few necessary words with his keepers. During the fortnight preceding his trial, he resumed his vigorous life. He complained of want of air. Consequently, early every morning he was allowed to exercise in the courtyard, guarded by two men. Public curiosity had not died out. Every day it expected to be regaled with news of his escape. And, it is true, he had gained a considerable amount of public sympathy by reason of his verve, his gaiety, his diversity, his inventive genius, and the mystery of his life. Arsène Lupin must escape. It was his inevitable fate. The public expected it, and was surprised that the event had been delayed so long. Every morning the prefect of police asked his secretary, Well, has he escaped yet? No, monsieur le préfet. Tomorrow, probably. And on the day before the trial, a gentleman called at the office of the Grand Journal, asked to see the court reporter, threw his card in the reporter's face, and walked rapidly away. These words were written on the card. Arsène Lupin always keeps his promises. It was under these conditions that the trial commenced. An enormous crowd gathered at the court. Everybody wished to see the famous Arsène Lupin. They had a gleeful anticipation that the prisoner would play some audacious pranks upon the judge. Advocates and magistrates, reporters and men of the world, actresses and society women were crowded together on the benches provided for the public. It was a dark, sombre day, with a steady downpour of rain. Only a dim light pervaded the courtroom, and the spectators caught a very indistinct view of the prisoner when the guards brought him in. But his heavy, shambling walk, the manner in which he dropped into his seat, and his passive, stupid appearance, were not at all prepossessing. Several times his advocate, one of M. Danval's assistants spoke to him, but he simply shook his head and said nothing. The clerk read the indictment, then the judge spoke. Prisoner at the bar, stand up. Your name, age, and occupation? Not receiving any reply, the judge repeated, Your name? I ask you your name. A thick, slow voice muttered, Baudru, Désiré. A murmur of surprise pervaded the courtroom, but the judge proceeded. Baudru Désiré? Ah, a new alias! Well, as you have already assumed a dozen different names, and this one is, no doubt, as imaginary as the others, 
we will adhere to the name of Arsène Lupin, by which you are more generally known. The judge referred to his notes and continued, For, despite the most diligent search, your past history remains unknown. Your case is unique in the annals of crime. We know not whom you are, whence you came, your birth and breeding. All is a mystery to us. Three years ago you appeared in our midst as Arsène Lupin, presenting to us a strange combination of intelligence and perversion, immorality and generosity. Our knowledge of your life prior to that date is vague and problematical. It may be that the man called Rostat, who, eight years ago, worked with Dixon, the prestidigitator, was none other than Arsène Lupin. It is probable that the Russian student who, six years ago, attended the laboratory of Dr. Altier at the Saint-Louis Hospital, and who often astonished the doctor by the ingenuity of his hypotheses on subjects of bacteriology and the boldness of his experiments in diseases of the skin, was none other than Arsène Lupin. It is probable also that Arsène Lupin was the professor who introduced the Japanese art of jiu-jitsu to the Parisian public. We have some reason to believe that Arsène Lupin was the bicyclist who won the Grand Prix de l'Exposition, received his ten thousand francs, and was never heard of again. Arsène Lupin may have been also the person who saved so many lives through the little dormer window at the charity bazaar, and at the same time picked their pockets. The judge paused for a moment, then continued. Such is that epoch which seems to have been utilized by you in a thorough preparation for the warfare you have since waged against society, methodical apprenticeship in which you developed your strength, energy, and skill to the highest point possible. Do you acknowledge the accuracy of these facts? During this discourse the prisoner had stood balancing himself first on one foot, then on the other, with shoulders stooped and arms inert. Under the strongest light one could observe his extreme thinness, his hollow cheeks, his projecting cheekbones, his earthen-coloured face dotted with small red spots and framed in a rough, straggling beard. Prison life had caused him to age and wither. He had lost the youthful face and elegant figure we had seen portrayed so often in the newspapers. It appeared as if he had not heard the question propounded by the judge. Twice it was repeated to him. Then he raised his eyes, seemed to reflect. Then, making a desperate effort, he murmured, Baudreux, Désiré. The judge smiled as he said, I do not understand the theory of your defense, Arsène Lupin. If you are seeking to avoid responsibility for your crimes on the ground of imbecility, such a line of defense is open to you. But I shall proceed with the trial and pay no heed to your vagaries. He then narrated at length the various thefts, swindles, and forgeries charged against Lupin. Sometimes he questioned the prisoner, but the latter simply grunted or remained silent. The examination of witnesses commenced. Some of the evidence given was immaterial. Other portions of it seemed more important, but through all of it there ran a vein of contradictions and inconsistencies. A wearisome obscurity enveloped the proceedings until Detective Ganimard was called as a witness. Then interest was revived. From the beginning, the actions of the veteran detective appeared strange and unaccountable. He was nervous and ill at ease. 
Several times he looked at the prisoner, with obvious doubt and anxiety. Then, with his hands resting on the rail in front of him, he recounted the events in which he had participated, including his pursuit of the prisoner across Europe and his arrival in America. He was listened to with great avidity, as his capture of Arsène Lupin was well known to everyone through the medium of the press. Toward the close of his testimony, after referring to his conversations with Arsène Lupin, he stopped twice, embarrassed and undecided. It was apparent that he was possessed of some thought which he feared to utter. The judge said to him sympathetically, "'If you are ill, you may retire for the present.' "'No, no, but—' He stopped, looked sharply at the prisoner, and said, "'I ask permission to scrutinize the prisoner at closer range. There is some mystery about him that I must solve.' He approached the accused man, examined him attentively for several minutes, then returned to the witness-stand, and in an almost solemn voice he said, I declare on oath that the prisoner now before me is not Arsène Lupin. A profound silence followed the statement. The judge, nonplussed for a moment, exclaimed, Ah! Oh, what do you mean? That is absurd! The detective continued, At first sight there is a certain resemblance, but if you carefully consider the nose, the mouth, the hair, the color of skin, you will see that it is not Arsène Lupin. And the eyes! Did he ever have those alcoholic eyes? Come, come, witness! What do you mean? Do you pretend to say that we are trying the wrong man? In my opinion, yes. Arsène Lupin has in some manner contrived to put this poor devil in his place, unless this man is a willing accomplice. This dramatic denouement caused much laughter and excitement amongst the spectators. The judge adjourned the trial and sent for M. Bouvier, the jailer and guards employed in the prison. When the trial was resumed, M. Bouvier and the jailer examined the accused and declared that there was only a very slight resemblance between the prisoner and Arsène Lupin. "'Well, then,' exclaimed the judge, "'who is this man? Where does he come from?' What is he in prison for? Two of the prison guards were called, and both of them declared that the prisoner was Arsène Lupin. The judge breathed once more. But one of the guards then said, Yes, yes, I think it is he. What? cried the judge impatiently. You think it is he? What do you mean by that? Well, I saw very little of the prisoner. He was placed in my charge in the evening, and for two months he seldom stirred, but laid on his bed with his face to the wall. What about the time prior to those two months? Before that he occupied a cell in another part of the prison. He was not in cell 24. Here the head jailer interrupted and said, We changed him to another cell after his attempted escape. But you, monsieur, you have seen him during those two months? I had no occasion to see him. He was always quiet and orderly. And this prisoner is not Arsène Lupin? No. Then who is he? demanded the judge. I do not know. Then we have before us a man who was substituted for Arsène Lupin two months ago. How do you explain that? 
I cannot. In absolute despair, the judge turned to the accused and addressed him in a conciliatory tone. Prisoner, can you tell me how and since when you became an inmate of the prison de la Santé? The engaging manner of the judge was calculated to disarm the mistrust and awaken the understanding of the accused man. He tried to reply. Finally, under clever and gentle questioning, he succeeded in framing a few phrases from which the following story was gleaned. Two months ago he had been taken to the depot, examined and released. As he was leaving the building, a free man, he was seized by two guards and placed in the prison van. Since then he had occupied cell 24. He was contented there, plenty to eat, and he slept well, so he did not complain. All that seemed probable, and amidst the mirth and excitement of the spectators, the judge adjourned the trial until the story could be investigated and verified. End of chapter 3, part 1 Ha ha ha, Zalupin, you're such a clever gentleman. Anyway, hey, thank you all for listening so much. So much for listening. Check us out, rate, review, subscribe. Go to pgttcm.com if you want to check out some of our old t-shirts. New t-shirts coming up soon. Just got to get that stuff done. You know, I haven't had any free time lately. Like, really, really, I've, I've been super busy. Anyway, check out uh, my other project, Johnny Smooth Skin. And also, why not check out Articulate Warbling? Zach and Laura over in uh, Brighton, England, they're, they're, they're doing their best uh, watching movies, reading books, and uh, telling you what they think about it. All right, thank you so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you later with more Lupin.